Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we're back with another regular episode of the TFA Podcast. I'm on with a very special guest. Some of my favorite guests to get on the podcast are managers or head coaches who have lots of experience in the game and provide the listeners with valuable knowledge of what it takes to create a successful team, to implement a philosophy correctly, to create a culture of not only winning, but a happy culture where excellent communication is at its core. Today, we've managed to get someone on the podcast who can provide that kind of insight. And that man is Jack Ross, the former boss of St. Mirren, Sunderland, Hibs and Dundee United. A former PFA Scotland Manager of the Year, Jack tells us all about his managerial career, his ambitions, his tactical philosophy and coaching philosophy, how he tries to create a culture of winning at clubs and much, much more. Jack was an excellent guest and gave some wonderful insights into the world of football tactics and analysis. And I hope you all learn a thing or two from this episode. Before we begin, though, please make sure to rate the podcast five stars, hopefully. It's greatly appreciated and it helps us to grow the podcast and to get more and more excellent guests like Jack Ross on. So now, without further ado, let's go speak to Jack. Jack, thank you so much for joining me today, even though we've had, um, or I've had (laughs) some serious technical difficulties on my end. I'm very sorry. How have you been? Good, thanks, Adam. Yeah, um, thank you for the invite to come on, and um, looking forward to to, to um, taking part in your podcast. There's when I get guests on the podcast, I suppose I like to know about their their background, especially with coaches. You know, they say football management is the loneliest job, I suppose, in the world. That it's kind of a, it became a cliche, but what 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 makes you want to be? A football manager and I mean when you were say playing or was there a specific moment you can pinpoint in your past where you said yeah this is this is something I I, I really want to do um, well I mean I think traditionally the the pathway was for players to become managers because it was mm-hmm. a it, it was a you know they had to work and it, you looked at the, what opportunities were available to them and also it tended to be dominant management tended to be to be dominated by former players. Now, obviously, the landscape has changed quite significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, in recent times, there's a far more eclectic group, if you like, who manage in terms of their backgrounds and experiences. Um, but in terms of my, I suppose, my desire to do so, um, it's, it's evolved, I think, during during my playing days. I I, I captained a lot of teams or was, or was vice-captain mm-hmm. or captain at a lot of clubs. So I was always comfortable with it. I think the leadership aspect, communication, um, taking responsibility—all the things I think you need to, to have to be a manager—and then naturally I became more inquisitive about coaching. So there was a kind of combination of those factors during my playing days. Mm-hmm. Um, but ironically enough, post playing, I was involved. With, I worked with PFA in Scotland, um, and I was I was pretty set on going down the, the route of being involved in football administration, football politics. Um, and then I got opportunity to go into coaching full time, and it took me in this direction to then go down the pathway of being a football manager. So mm. I would love to say that I had this preconceived plan from you know a young age going on to be a manager, but I think it's just like anything. I think it's your own life and career journey that takes you in different directions at times, and then you might you know, I think you're smart enough to um, to understand whether or not you might be good at doing something, and then maximise the opportunity when it comes around. When you were playing, did you watch your coaches closely to kind of pick up habits from them that you that you liked or things you maybe didn't enjoy so much? Because I remember, I believe it w- was with the coach's voice, John Terry spoke about it, that when Jose Mourinho was at Chelsea, after every training session, he would write down and jot down the sessions they did so he could pick up little things from Mourinho that he enjoyed or things that he didn't like as much. I mean, w- did you do that? Did, I mean, were our coaches that you that you have used so much inspiration from, from your playing career that you've taken now into football management? I think there's two aspects of that. Again, I think when I played, there was probably, a certainly the early part of my, career, my, my playing career, there was that distinction between management and coaching. Mm-hmm. I think through my playing career, they started to merge closer together. And then again, we've seen that evolution towards that, you know, managers or head coaches must really be able to coach as well. So, I think I had a, an interest in both areas, the management aspect of it in terms of how you lead players and then the coaching part of it, about how you deliver on pitch. 
So the management aspect, I suppose, there was a lot of things that um, happened in my era of playing that I didn't want to manage in that way. That's yeah. not to say they were bad managers, they weren't. It was just um, it was a different generation of mm-hmm. transparency, clarity of information, regularity of communication. I think all that has evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coaching-wise, I um, I suppose I just became a little bit more inquisitive. And, and probably the first time I started to do that, I worked under um, Brian Rice, who was my assistant manager at Falkirk. Brian played good play, a really good playing career with Hibs and then Nottingham Forest and with Brian Clough. But mm-hmm. um, Brian was probably one of the first coaches that, that I worked under that, that was creative in what he did. You know, there was always, if you asked him, there was always a thought process behind it. But he was he um, he was innovative for what he did at that time. So I think it was that that sparked a little bit more interest in coaching and lended me to be more inquisitive. But I think then what you do is once. I think what you should do is once you get the opportunity to coach and manage, I think you've got to, I think you've got to create your own way. You know, I think trying to yeah. imitate somebody, I think you can take learning experiences from people, but I think imitating some somebody's dangerous because I think you've got to find your own way of working and your own way of tolerating. Mm-hmm. And what was the transition like then to go from playing for such a, a long period of time then to move into management where you, well, it's it's obviously completely different because I think when you're a player, you're just a piece of the jigsaw but then when you're a manager you're the one putting the jigsaw together so it is quite different in how you handle different personalities and you know maybe if you've if you have teammates and your friends and then you become the manager you have to kind of deal with them I suppose a little bit differently how was that transition for you? I think when I when I um, come back to when I played that I felt as if I could have went and been a manager immediately mm. and I think that was incorrect to think that but you know, that's what I thought. I thought, no, I can. I'm comfortable with responsibility. I'm comfortable leading. I can do that. I can handle being a manager. But the way it transpired, I got an opportunity to coach first as an assistant manager, and um, that learning experience of getting loads of times on the pitch coaching, which I think was great for me, um, and so then back in my ability to coach, and then also being slightly, you know, that, that assistant manager job is a good one to get gain a greater understanding of the relationship between player and manager and, and everything that goes alongside being a manager. So I think those experiences along the way meant that when I got the opportunity to be a manager in my own right, I think I'd built up enough experience and, and had enough insight to have a good understanding of what it was like. And it meant then when I did it, it felt comfortable. You know, I didn't ever feel phased by it. Yeah. Would it have been different if I had went... I jumped immediately from playing. I think it would have been because I think I don't think it's an easy transition, um, and I didn't plan it that way. Um, I just it was just through circumstances that that's how my pathway took me. But certainly, I think it lended itself to me being better equipped to manage when I got that first opportunity. Mm-hmm. You did get uh, a couple of games at Dumbarton as a caretaker manager. Did that kind of quench your thirst? Where you had a little bit of a, I suppose, a teaser into what it was like to be a manager on a professional team and then you kind of or you know you kind of got the feeling of yeah I, I, I really want to do this now going forward yeah I mean I think as I mentioned a couple of times I always I always wanted to manage and always felt I could manage um, but having been in the coaching aspect of it first if I had felt that that continued to give me the most satisfaction and that mm-hmm. short spell as you mentioned there was good because again it gave me I don't think it's always entirely accurate when you're caretaker because there is a yeah. different dynamic, but it still gives you an insight to carry that responsibility. And one of the things that, that maybe that gets overlooked is it gives you that first experience of standing in that technical area of being the main man or the mm. main person because that's a different feeling. And that was the thing that I noticed the most is all of a sudden you go from being the guy in the background that can be a little bit more relaxed yeah. to this person that's front and centre do you feel it? Do you, do, you, do you feel that pressure on the touchline? Not maybe pressure is not a good word, but maybe it's different. Yeah, it's a different dynamic. You know, it does feel different. Um, I think you're conscious of it. You know, as I said, you've said pressure. I think pressure is on. Is, is always there anyway. Mm. But it's how you obviously deal with it. But I think that my die felt it notably different. I just felt it was uh, this natural that we have this different um, feel around it and. Um, I think again that was a good taste for me to know. Yeah, I want more of that. Yeah, did I enjoy it? 
did I feel as if I was good at it? Because that's the other thing, you know, it's okay. You can, have a good, you can have good fun doing it, but if you don't think you're going to be any good at it, then you mm-hmm. should be smart enough to think, well, I'm not going to be on that pathway as well. Yeah. Uh, we've had guests on the podcast before, such as Dean Holden, who's now at Charlton. We had Paul Simpson at Carlisle. They went down similar paths to you, that they started as assistant managers or, or assistant coaches, and they went on into management. I, I asked them this question as well, and I'd love to get your take on things. I suppose when, you, when you're the assistant manager or, or you know, you, you're working with the manager and you have to have that, you know, relationship and that communication with the manager is it have has has that almost helped you as a manager because you know the proper way to communicate with your coach and staff and how you know you were I suppose how your manager at the time when you were with Dumbarton how they or how they I suppose communicated with you and then you've brought that into your management and say okay well this is how I like to operate as an assistant manager so this is how I'm going to ask my coaches to operate with me then yeah, I think very much so. I think it's, you know, a lot of my management approach was born out of um, always remembering what it was like to be a player. Mm-hmm. So I always put myself in the position of my players so through any challenging period for them because when players were unhappy about being left out or whatever it may be, then it's okay being the manager and saying, well, this is how I see it, but how do they feel at that moment? So similar with coaches. But without having had that coach experience would I really have understood it maybe not you know when is the moment that the coach needs to ensure that their value um, or they are valued because mm. it's not taken for granted what's the important part of their job when might they struggle when might they need reassurance um, when might they need more work delegated to them that they're capable of doing etc so I think that being aware of the good things and the frustrations of sometimes being an assistant, I think then helped me. Um, again, similarly spoken before about when I made that progression into management, it hopefully was why I did okay. Was because I had that. Um, I think empathy with both players and staff because mm-hmm. I had been in both on both roles. Is is delegation one of the most important, I suppose, attributes a manager can have? Because I know there seems to be some sort of not issue but I suppose when Sir Alex was at Manchester United there was this idea that he controlled everything and almost I see a lot of coaches and managers that I've spoken to they kind of aspire to have that kind of control over a club but I just think in the modern age you know and I haven't had any experience at the highest level of course so I'm just speaking from my own maybe my own thought process but I feel like it's much more difficult to do that now when Fergie was maybe an anomaly in that sense you know I think delegation is so so important for managers not even just in football I mean just in general in any walk of life for a manager to delegate to his staff how important is delegation for you and is it something that you you have always been good at is something you had to maybe learn with the trade as well to Maybe okay. We need to. I need to delegate opposition analysis to the analysts or something like that, or coach into some of your force team coaches on certain occasions. Because I'm sure you have, when you're managing, you have a million and one things to do. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think I was always good at it. Um, mm-hmm. Far from it. Um, and I think that is born out of one control you've mentioned. But I don't think necessarily control from an egotistical point of view. I think a lot of the mm-hmm. control is born out of the accountability and responsibility. Yeah. You know, because in the dynamics of football management have never changed in that that ninety nine times out of hundred, the person who bears the brunt of not doing well was the manager. So when you have that when you carry that real clear accountability and responsibility, I think it then is difficult to relinquish control. Because mm-hmm. if you're gonna if you're gonna fail then you probably want to be you want to feel doing everything, of course, yeah, as much as you can. So I think that's the thing you have to, to understand. Um, but I think that the dynamics of football clubs have changed. I think the staffing structures are far bigger. Um, I think the allegation is healthy, but as I said, I've had to get better at it, and I I got better at it at Sunderland because of the size of the club, because mm-hmm. um, I needed to. So I needed to be able to delegate more because it was impossible for me to do everything that I'd done previously. And then also experiences dictated to me that I need to, to give more responsibility to my staff in certain areas. Um, if you still speak to some of the staff I've worked on, I'm sure they would say I still need to get better at it because I'm aware I need to 
but I think a lot of managers would, would give you the same the same answer. You yeah. know, do they do they delegate enough? Probably not. Why? Because ultimately they're accountable and responsible, and and that's you know they, to marry the two things together isn't easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Uh, you actually touched on something that I wanted to talk about later, but I, I'll, I'll ask you now. Um, you kind of said that managers are held accountable for everything, which is which is true. I mean, Antonio Conte actually just said that in his press conference yesterday, I believe, about the differences in Italian football and English football in terms of, in Italian football, I mean, with AC Milan, for instance, you see after games, Paolo Maldini, the... I think I believe he's the sporting director or their their title of sporting director. He'll come out and do interviews and, you know, I suppose uphold the values of the club and explain where things went wrong, what they're doing on and off the pitch, etc. And then you have like at Juventus, you've Pavel Nedved, of course, as well, uh, doing the same. In England, it's just all on the manager. You you put a, a really interesting post, actually. I think I shared it yesterday or the day before on LinkedIn about working with sporting directors and it was maybe something you were against at the start, but now you've You've grown more in favour of having a sporting director in the club. Why is a sporting director so important, especially for modern clubs and for managers nowadays with the amount of responsibility that comes with managing a football club? And do you believe that Conte's comments are are, are correct, really, in terms of, you know, directors in England kind of sit behind closed doors and don't really speak to the press at all? Um, I mean, I think I think to begin with, similar um, reasoning behind the need or the requirement for sporting director, as I mentioned in the previous answer, and that the structure of football clubs has became much bigger. Mm-hmm. So many more departments, um, you know, particularly at the very elite level. But even now, that's filtered down. And you know, traditionally, you would you wouldn't have that many departments. But the, the emergency, the emergency data. Um, across both performance and recruitment has many of these departments have became essential and strong in their own rights. Um, and as each of these departments grows and gets bigger, there's more and more staff involved in it. So I think, again, something you touched on earlier, but having that control over everything for a manager becomes really tough mm-hmm. and is not necessarily healthy. Um, and interesting enough, you know, the, the, the point about this responsibility, again, my first submission for my master's course was about and the sporting director, you know, being in a leadership position. And um, if we accept that the person, the sporting director is, then of course the manager or the head coach is usually a leader as well. Yeah. So it's, how, do that, how does that dynamics work? And one of them is, it's interesting that Conte made that point because one, I think the, the technical director position in Italian football is, is a essential through club licensing. So it's been more of a accepted part of the game, if you like. Now in, in England in particular, the, the, um, the provision of spawned out to roll across all the top clubs is there. Will the next step be for them to be more visible? I think potentially. I think, the, again, the counter you've got to that is how, manage, how would managers feel about it? The managers that work in England at the moment, yeah. from the UK, you know, would they be happy? But if, it, if it's lending itself to that more shared responsibility and accountability, then I think it it makes managers feel more at ease because I think that's the one the one dynamic that's missing at the minute. Is it? There's a lot, a lot of people working football clubs now across all different departments and areas, um, and all have their own responsibility. But that ultimate responsibility is always the manager. Um, as you mentioned there, he's always the one, or he or she is always the one who has to then explain, um, or, or talk through any good or bad experiences. Um, so, I think that. I think it may come. I think it may come. Yeah. I think, it, again, it'll be an evolution, but it wouldn't surprise me if we got to the position where sporting directors were more visible um, in terms of their communication. I know I know some of them are, but, I mean, but that immediate post-match aspect mm-hmm. of it, um, it may be that that comes in the future within UK football. It is amazing, isn't it, that so many like directors at clubs or even owners just in England anyway or, or the UK don't come out and they don't speak out about you know, aspects of the club, it's all left on the manager. I mean, I remember in, uh, I think it was 2021, um, Manchester United fans protested on the pitch and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was asked constantly about the protests. And I just think, but doesn't, what, what kind of, what do you want him to say? You know, and then I think they interviewed the Glazers maybe once in the last 15 years. And I just think that it's, it, it's kind of, um, 
it's kind of mind-boggling that you've left that solely down to a manager to answer as the forefront of the club, even though he's literally just head coach of a football team. So I, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's um, I think it's yeah. Just... I think I think on that, I think it's you've seen that 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 you know you mentioned earlier about that um, that there was that traditional controlling aspect that mm-hmm. the football club, and I think most people accept that that can't be done, and yet. And keeps going back to that accountability. It's, it's the manager that has to face up to everything. I mean, particularly yeah. if you take managers that manage through um, through the lockdown period and COVID. Um, you know, we got asked a lot of questions in that period that really, you yeah. know, were way beyond not not our intellect level. That's unfair because there are a lot of smart mm-hmm. managers out there. But in terms of our levels of expertise, I, mean, I, I remember going through a period been asked consistently about you know, lockdowns and vaccines and testing and yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you can and then of course and if you give a and it's happened with some managers, if you give an answer that's that goes slightly off piste, then you know, you get a lot of criticism for it. Yeah. Um I suppose the World Cup was another example of it. About some of the things that managers were asked around, you know, where the World Cup went, etc. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of things that that I think could be shared better. But of course, the manager's the one that's put up, you know, once, twice, three times, four times a week to face media conferences, and therefore um, are accessible, if you like, for people to ask questions often. Mm. And it almost does seem as though certain clubs, anyway, are more than happy to allow it to happen. Whereas you see, in like in Italy, I know that the directors at Juventus stay in the, the changing room. You know, maybe we wouldn't go that far in England because I don't think uh, I know a lot of coaches wouldn't like that, but I still think it's quite interesting the different dynamic. Um, so yeah, that, that 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 is a really interesting um, topic to discuss. But I, I want to talk to you about, I suppose, firstly your time with Saint Mirren. I believe you took over uh, mid-season at Saint Mirren. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. What's that like? Because not every coach will have the, I suppose, the honor of, or the the, the ability really to take over clubs in pre-season. Obviously, that's probably more ideal. But if a job arises and you think it's a great opportunity, you'll take it mid-season. What? How difficult is that compared to when you have a preseason with your players? And how are you, I suppose, how are you looking to do things differently than when you would have a preseason? Like maybe if you want to play a certain way, you wouldn't be able to implement that straight away. So how are you kind of looking to just, are you looking to just slightly tweak things on the pitch? Or, you know, what kind of stuff would you be looking at? Um, well, first of all, I think you're right to say in terms of the differences between having a full preseason or close season period behind you, much, much more much easier mm-hmm. um, than coming in mid-season and often when you get a job mid-season it's when a club are in difficulty yeah. you know obviously managers can move and be successful but usually it's when a club's in difficulty so um, I took the Alabama manager's job when they were bought in the league I took the Simone manager's job when they were bought in the league um, I think I took the Hibs manager's job when they were a point off the bottom of the league so an all mid-season so all mid-season and all not doing particularly well Um the Simon one was in it was a really good learning experience for me in that respect because I had came from Alloa where we were doing really well and um, I tried to replicate the way I was playing immediately. Simon tried to train in the way we were training and and on you know, reflection I didn't have a squad that was capable of doing either. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily a criticism individually of all the players in the squad. It's just they weren't a fit for my method of working either in training or playing. Um, so I had to reflect on that after I had to get through. I mean, I got through a difficult period. Eventually, we managed to, you know, we, we came from eight points of drift at the bottom of the table to stay up in the last day. But I I made that maybe more difficult, if you like, because I went in and tried to, to think I could just do what I do almost. You come in with that. I think as a young manager, when you're doing well and you're winning games, you have a certain amount. It's not arrogance, but there's a belief around, but okay, my way works. I'm really good at it. Just replicate that and we'll be great. Whereas it, it taught me to to um, take a step back a little bit. It's a quick step back because you'll see with games coming up and it meant that if I fast forward then to Hibs a number of years later, um, when I took the job, they'd had one game in charge under the caretaker manager and had one playing a diamond a diamond wasn't anything a Mitchell diamond wasn't a system I had coached or played before um, but I, I, I played it the first I think four or five games of my time there because they had won previously it probably suited the players that were there at the time 
and we actually did okay in that opening period. So there's two examples of completely different approaches, if you like, to it. The second one was was born out of the experience of the, the first one. Yeah. And then when you do have a full preseason, which you did in the summer of 2018, I believe. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that would... Or is it, sorry, the summer of 2017? Sorry, summer of 2017. Yes, yeah. summer of 2017, you then had a full preseason. Um, I suppose, I think you said actually on the MSC podcast recently that preseason was your favourite favorite time to be a coach. Is that right? Yeah, so for a couple of reasons. One, you get loads and loads of time with the training patch, so you mm-hmm. coach a lot. Um, and two, you don't have games. <laughs> you know you have a period where you're not judged on a weekly basis and three you don't have press conferences so yeah. it's a it's a it's this utopia for a coach where you have this you know six week period or eight week period or whatever yeah. it might be depending on what's happened the season before that you you it's almost coaching in its purest sense yeah um, almost grassroots you're, coaching it, 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 yeah and you imagine yeah. pre-season as well players are happy aren't they because everybody's yeah you know, nobody's been dropped, nobody's been left out. So mm-hmm. the whole dynamics are, are very different. It's quite romantic, if you like, at that time of year. Um, <laughs> from a, from a <laughs> it all changes when, when the competitive. Because, of course, you have that in the first game of the season comes and you either win or you lose it and you drop players yeah. and you leave players out and you sub players. And then you get asked questions after the game and you just go back to normal. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a nice period. But in terms of what you do, I think when you... I think that... Um, I think just because of that period is so good, it allows you, you know, this blank canvas, if you like, to mm-hmm. to create what you want from the season. Yeah. Um, you know, what, how you want to play, what system you want to play, the flexibility within your system, all these things. Um, you know, you're recruiting or you have recruited, so there's just a just an exciting part of it, and it is a, the best way to describe it is almost just having this blank canvas, and then mm-hmm. you painting the picture you want for the season. Because when you when you're doing it mid season, as we've discussed, it's you're rubbing bits out and drawing bits onto somebody else's drawing, if you like, and it all starts to look, you can look a little bit messy. And you were incredibly successful that 2017-18 season, which obviously led to you getting the Sunderland job. But I I just want to know how you, I suppose, how do you create that winning culture? It, it it's almost become a a cliche for people to say. You know, oh, managers need to create a winning culture. But how do you, how do you do that? Is it is it something that you police yourself? Is it is it self policed by the players? I mean, how do you kind of, how do you manage that aspect? Because things can go so well in football, as you see, but things can also mm. go so so wrong. And it's, you know, there's so many variables in football that you can't. Re- I suppose you can't really um, manage everything. I mean, something can go wrong in a game. A player can just slip, and the opposition score. How do you, I suppose, keep that winning culture up? How do you keep that the players hungry, especially off the, the back of the 2016-17 season going into 2017-18, and then you were so successful? Was there something that you maybe did differently, or was it just a, a, a thing that the players all just came together and everything was just happy? Um, I think generally, first of all, I, I don't necessarily believe in that you can create a winning culture. Mm-hmm. I think what you can do is I think you can create a culture that lends itself to giving the players and staff the best opportunity of success. So, yeah. and if you give them the best opportunity of success through through the environment you create, then and you start winning, then that's when the momentum builds. So you spoke about that; it can go either way. Because I do think that I think to believe in this magic formula that just just wins games. I'm not sure that's there, but I do think there's I do think there's, there's ways in which you can obviously create an environment that brings out the best in people. So I think that's the secret, and that's feeling it. You, you, there'll be different clubs, different players, different countries that will require different environments, um, and I think you have to figure that out. Um, and specifically to that group, the, the although we had only stayed up on the, the, the final day of the season. The run we had to go on to stay up meant that for the last, I think, three months of the season, we were as, in terms of form, we as good as ending the league. So we had we had momentum anyway, if you like, to take into that to that post-season and pre-season period. So that helped. Um, so I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, probably the, the simplest way is that through the environment you create as a manager and you lead in, um, lends itself to give them the best chance of success. And you also need 
you need. You need a bit of good fortune and luck along the way. You need moments. You need things yeah. to fall your way to continue to create that. And it's amazing that the one thing that I know people do speak about the time and they might say it's cliche, but momentum is incredible. It just it's incredible when it starts to build. I suppose Arsenal are an example of it at the moment yeah. in the English Premiership. You know, just top team, but just have this. Like when you watch them just now, you just they just look to me as if they believe they'll win every game. Mm-hmm. I mean, this and is actually again, Pep is, or sorry, momentum is something that Pep actually spoke about before as being the the only thing really in football that he can't control. So, and especially during games, he spoke something yeah. like he does his best to control it, but when when that momentum switches, yeah, it's just there's it's, so little you can do. It's interesting because I put a post on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago about the thought process that happens during a game. And the, mm-hmm. the reason I did it was because that, kind of similar to what you've just spoke about there, that Guardiola said, is that often when when it, when your team relinquishes control or is dominating the game, the criticism or the perception or people's opinion after is that you've you've told them to sit back, you've told them to be defensive. You've told, you know, there, there might be occasions, but most of the time, momentum shifts. Yeah. And and obviously the skill as a coach or a, as a head coach and manager is to sense when that's happening and to try and um, to try and stop it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not always possible because it's um, it's still played by twenty two human beings on pitch at one time. You know, it's not played by robots. And and I think similarly that momentum that builds up game to game, but that momentum shift in matches is is such a difficult thing to control. And when it comes, it's Pretty powerful. That again, if you're looking at recent examples, that um, you know the quarterfinal of the World Cup, Argentina against the Netherlands. Yeah, you know, just an example of you know people be watching that game. And Argentina are super comfortable in the game, and yes, people can point to the Netherlands going really direct and playing long, and but the momentum just shifted mm-hmm. so dramatically in a game. And you know, is that bad management? No, I don't, I don't think so. It's just yeah. what happens sometimes, and you've just got to try and react and and um, find a way out that that problem. And even the final, I mean, like I, it was one of the worst performances I've seen in a World Cup final for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, compared to maybe Croatia in twenty eighteen, but there was a bit of a quality mismatch there. But anyway, yeah, it was. The, I mean, the momentum shifted completely once that fourth goal went in for France. I just, I, yeah. I was blown away like nobody thought they'd get back into it. Argentina were cruising yeah it's crazy momentum is just unstoppable at times and as you said it's up to the manager maybe to recognise when that happens and maybe make a sub or, or you know it, whatever different ways you look to control it even if it's sometimes an un- unstoppable force Um, I want to ask you about kind of your your tactical philosophy then because when I, I'm sure you have an idea of how you want to play firstly I want to ask you I spoke to, I think it was David Artel before, he was the former Crew Alexandra manager, and he said to me that he didn't even have a, a tactical philosophy when he took over Crew because his the, getting the job was so unexpected for him. But when he left, a few, I think it was the start of last year, he just sat in his office and just wrote down in every phase how he wants his team to play. Did you have a similar... I suppose, did, did, how did you come up with your idea of how football wants to be played? Was it in my imagination? It's just you sitting in like a dark room with a notebook, jotting down, you know, how you want your side to play in each each phase of the game, or is it just something that I suppose you always had in mind from from when you were playing as well? Um, no, I think no, I think it comes when you progress into coaching. Maybe not so much now. Maybe because there's so much more awareness around game models and producing mm-hmm. your own style, etc. That that players or those that have the ambition, guys that haven't played, have the ambition to go and be a coach or manager, do all this. Um, but certainly, I only really started thinking about it properly when I was when I was post playing. Um, and for me, I I I worked on more general pillars of the game, if you like. So I had I'd always broken the game down to four four areas, which was how we defend, how we how we defend, how we press, how we counter, and how we switch. So these were my four, or they've always remained my four fundamental pillars, if you like. And then from there, I've always I've looked to then what I'm working with, what squad I'm at, what club I'm at, what league I'm in, and then about finding the best way to work within that. And of course, then you'll coach those different pillars in slightly different ways, depending on how you want to play the game. Um, the one thing that I would say I've always been pretty consistent with is I've never ever as a coach been obsessed by possession yeah 
Um, and it's interesting to see some of the shift now in the dynamics of the game that for a number of years this possession was king. Mm-hmm. Um, probably in the back of Pep's Barcelona team and, and the Spanish national team that you know, his possession was, was ultimately the most important thing and allowed you to control games, etc. But now we see a lot more of you know, a number of teams in the World Cup who progressed who had thirty to thirty five percent possession in matches and it becomes a bit of a counter attack. And so I was never I was more if you if you pitched, if you asked me to say what was a more I preferred being a team that played on the counter and had that transitional aspect of it. Yeah. yeah. And that high press aspect of it rather than, you know, one that really controlled the game and had long spells of possession. Um and I suppose if you're pushing me, why is that the case? It's probably just my preference on how I, I like that, how I watch the game. Well, why do you think you know, that I, that shift happened? I suppose actually is is something I do want to ask on the back of that. Um, I think it, I think it happens because teams look at ways to um, counter what the opposition do. So when when teams became so possession based and and became so good at keeping possession, you're not always going to be able to go toe to toe with that. So what do you do? Then you then look to play on the counter. And as that becomes successful, the more people then imitate it. You know, it's like at the moment, I think when you watch some games, I think teams have got so good at um, pressing high against teams playing out that I think you're starting to see more teams play direct. And I don't mean through direct through the whole game, but I think a lot of times they're going over that press to begin with yeah, and then going and playing. So that's, a, that's another evolution that's came about because because every time you design something or you come up with a way of playing there's, there's other teams trying to stop you doing it so I think that that and it'll just keep going in cycles it just keeps going in cycles I think because once a team has success playing in some way right well we can't go toe to toe with them doing that how do we mm-hmm. stop that and if we're good at stopping it more teams eliminate that does that become the norm then somebody then looks at defeating that and so on and just goes round and round it is interesting and there's also I know Jonathan Wilson wrote a book called Inverting the Pyramid, which is one of my favourite mm. football books. It's a brilliant book, but yeah, he, he, he I've talks got about it. I've got yeah. my bookshelf, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a brilliant book, but he, um, he obviously, Inverting the Pyramid is a reference to how teams kind of use the 2-3-5 or WM formation, and now they use like a 5-3-2, but we're going back and kind of, it's just gone full circle now, but in a more refined way. So the principles are different, but it's the same kind of structures, and it's, it's really interesting that you said that, you know, it kind of happens in cycles and you it just will always kind of happen like that. Maybe there's going to be no more innovation in football. Maybe we've kind of hit that ceiling already, which is is unfortunate if we have. But um, I do want to just ask you, though, about just staying on this topic. When you, I suppose, when you have the idea of how you want football to be played, maybe you're not quite able to implement it as much because you might not have the correct players, especially if you're taking over mid-season. You kind of just have to... I mean, there's no transfer when they're open in October, November. You just got to work with what you have. You know, how, I suppose, are you... Or, or, or a better question, actually, is are, are you able to adapt? Are you good at adapting to your philosophy, to the players you have at your disposal? And I suppose, as well, keeping in line with the same question and respectfully, I think you would have had better players at Sunderland than St Mirren, so were you able to kind of play the style you preferred more in Sunderland when you moved in 2018 compared to St Mirren? Um, I think the first part of the question, I think I've been better at being flexible and adaptive than I have been as coming in and saying that's my absolute specific style of play. Mm-hmm. So I don't think yeah, um, across any of my clubs, you would necessarily say I've played in the same way. I think I've, and that has been born. I looked at management. I thought there was two parts of management. One was problem solving. So how do you work out the best way to win games using what you've got at your disposal? And then I do think showing your skill as a coach is twofold. You can do it by having this really prescribed way of doing things, or you can do it by be smart enough to adapt and be flexible and, and find different ways. Um, and I suppose in terms of the, the, the question about moving from club to club, depends because you can get you can get overall differences in quality, but you can have different attributes. So, for example, you know you could coach or manage a team that maybe overall has less less ability, but has much more pace in their team. Mm-hmm. 
So even though you're going to manage and coach players of a better ability, but if there's not a lot of pace in the team, then it's difficult to play exactly the same way. So I think he's just being conscious of that as well, that you know, any time you know, somebody can progress as a coach or a manager and um, and naturally feel like the players are working with overall of a better standard. But if there were certain raw attributes that were visible in the team before that helped them be successful and they're not there in, the, in that perceived better group, then I think you have to be aware of that as well. Mm-hmm. well I suppose, are you more flexible now as a manager than when you first started your, your journey? In terms of, I suppose, um, tactically and maybe in terms of how you might deal with players with that experience, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think in all ways, I think that mentioned earlier about that learning experience when I first took some on job about um, probably naively at that time, I felt as if I had this way of playing in this system and I could just carry from club to club. So that, that I learned that quite quickly. And in terms of overall management style, I think undoubtedly, I think you, through experience, you you learn to realise that not everybody behaves the same way as you do. Yeah. So the things that, that, that you know, I'm, if I was told to be somewhere at one o'clock, I'd be there at twelve thirty. But that's me. You know, yeah. that doesn't mean to say I'm right. It's just how I am. So, you know, if a player walks in at a minute to one, then things like that used to irritate me. Every <laughs> manager, <laughs> so why are you not there at half twelve or quarter to one? And yeah. So, but I do think through self-reflection and thought, you you, you realise that okay, not everybody's going to behave in the same way. What are the things that? You um, uh, word it a different way. I think use your energy to focus on the things that are really important for you to influence and control. There are some things that you need to bend with that may go against your your own personality or may go against your own idealistic management approach. But there's nothing wrong with giving players small wins at times because you know it means then that when the comes to the really important stuff then I think you've got more leverage so that was something I, I think I, I got better at as the years went on about understanding um, what things to give up on if you like to make sure that the really important things were there mm-hmm. so, Sorry if this is a rogue question uh, but I, I am just curious are you are you good at giving praise to players because just from my own experience of just, I mean, just <laughs> operating a Sunday league level I think men in general can be quite uncomfortable giving compliments to players and it's not to say like, oh, well done, you played really well, but are you? you I suppose it can be, especially at the uh, men's level, and I'm not talking about kind of kids football. I think coaches can be quite hesitant to, to they can be quite hard on the players, they can be quite uh, tough on them, and don't praise them as much. Which then, I mean, everyone's different. From 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 your own perspective, is that something you're much better at now? Is it something you're always good at? Is it maybe something you need to improve on? No, I think it was um I think it was a strength from, from the beginning to be honest. I think the coaching aspect of that again helped. Because I think, you know, when you're coaching that part that positive affirmation that what what you're doing is twofold because you've designed the session and you've got players participating in it mm-hmm. and so you want you know everything that and if they respond to it in a good way. So it meant that I carried that into management anyway. Um and I, I think I recognised it. Again, going back to my own experiences, if a player was a told often enough as a player that I was doing well, when I was, maybe, probably not. Mm-hmm. You know, was I, did I have that? Did I quite often have that degree of insecurity as a player that I think most players carry? Yeah. So, again, being conscious of that, I meant that um, I, always, I always took that into management. And there, it comes naturally on the training pitch, for example. And then, or, or track side in a game or within the changing room but sometimes and, I, and I, I did this with staff as well sometimes I would just if I was in the gym for example and I, I might be in very informal casual conversation with somebody in a, in a performance department that maybe doesn't have that direct contact with me all the time but it can be as, as little as a casual conversation that says you know I, I know how hard how many hours you're spending here or I know what type of what you're doing it's mm-hmm. much appreciated by me I might not get the chance to see it all that often or have that direct contact with you. And then with players, it sometimes might be that it becomes a private conversation. Yeah. That, Especially for the ones that are consistently quite good. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the low-maintenance, high-output ones, if you like. You know, I think sometimes you've got to be conscious of them that you don't forget them. 
that you don't forget them and you, they take their contribution. They think that you're taking their contribution for granted. Um, but certainly that positive affirmation, I was always, I think I was always quite good at it and always comfortable with it. And again, it was born out, I think, that the experiences I had as a player and what I wanted to try and deliver for players. I really like that. I, I, again, I, I can only apologise that it was a rogue question, but I just I think it's so, so important. And I, your answer was fantastic. But just in all walks of life, there's so many staff that just don't get told. I mean, you know, I suppose when you do a job, it, some people just see it as, well, that's your job. You know, you, again, I'm not going to name names, but you see pundits on TV who that's kind of become their catchphrase now. You know, I think praise is really important for all walks of life, and it, it, it there's nothing worse than, I suppose, working for a manager in any job that that won't pull you to to the side and just give you a little bit of you know positive affirmation that you're doing a, a good job. So I really like that. Um, I just have one one more question, then I have a final question. Sorry, two more questions. Apologies. Um, how do you keep up with tactical trends? as a manager, because it's probably, I mean, the game's constantly moving. You, you, you see that yourself. And we already touched on that several times in the podcast. You, so like, are you, are you constantly watching games to take little ideas from? And maybe you'd say to yourself, Oh, I like that. And then you'll try to implement that in your own coaching game model. Or how do you, how do you kind of, what's the process for yourself to keep up with, with, with tactical trends in the game? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm any different to, to, all these individuals that are working their way through different levels of coaching and management have an interest in it. Mm-hmm. And I love football. Loved it from when I was five years old. Been lucky that for the you know the vast majority of my life I've been involved in it and worked in it. But it hasn't changed. So the one thing that I do is I very I very rarely if ever watch a game for just enjoyment. I enjoy it, but I'll always watch it. And the first thing I look at is well, what shape are these team playing and what is it? And I look at it tactically. Um, so it's very difficult to ever watch a game and just watch it casually, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll I'll read, I'll listen to po- I'll listen to podcasts, I'll watch interviews, I'll I still scour the internet for different bits and pieces that come up. Um, there's so many platforms there that provide um, insight and examples of training. So, um, and I think your own. You know, I'm doing a master's course at the moment, albeit in sports directorship, but it's about can I improve my education all the time? I, I quite a lot of coach ed for the last few years through pro pro license, A license, B license. Sometimes you pick up little snippets on these courses yeah. you can take from people. Um, CPD that I probably don't need to do, but I still, you know, I'll, I'll do it out with if you like because it's again, it's you know, I, I did a CPD recently. Um, that I, my hours were complete anyway, but I did it out with just curiosity, and it was on the, the the trends from the last Champions League campaign. Oh, really? And it and it was just you know it was, it was a Scottish FA CPD, and it was um, a couple of guys from UEFA that presented it, and um, a lot of it was based on data and stats, but it, mm-hmm. it was interesting. You know, it was it, it gives you you know food for thought, and if you only use one percent of it at some point moving forward, be great. Um, but I just think it's I don't think it's ever stopped being curious. Um, you know, I, I suppose when you get bumped and bruised a little bit with the game, it can sometimes um, lessen your appetite for it for a short period. But yeah. I don't think I'm any different. To, there's no doubt, I, you know, guys at the people that have been fortunate enough to work at the elite level, I don't think will do things much differently than, than what everybody else does. I think people mm. will be surprised. You know, they just find their information and are curious in the ways that everybody else is. Yeah. And regarding watching games tactically, um, this is quite a bad habit I have. I mean, I could be sitting in a pub with friends and I'm trying to look at West Ham shape, and it makes me not as much fun. Like uh, I'll say, so I understand what you mean when you say that you watch uh, games as well as tactically. It can kind of ruin your enjoyment sometimes if you're just trying to watch emotionally or or for fun. The final question, Jack, I just want to ask before we wrap up is a question I ask to all managers or coaches who come on the podcast because it's just something I'm interested in myself. Who have been your coaching inspirations throughout your career, and they don't have to be coaches that that you played under. They can just be coaches that you look up to. The, the most and that you enjoy watching the most, etc. Um, I've got two answers to this and, and I'll do them quickly. From a football perspective, um, I was lucky, and th- I just mentioned earlier about fate and fortune and sometimes going with momentum. I was lucky that I managed a couple of times in the same season against Celtic when Brendan mm-hmm. was manager, from Brendan Rodgers, so he, he was really good to me, gave me his time, visited him on a few occasions, and what he gave me was a positive, that positive affirmation that I was 
doing things in the correct way. So he was a big influence in probably giving me, probably without realising, confidence and belief in my abilities to go and manage at a higher level. So that was significant, I think, in terms of me really pursuing management at a better level, if you like, and going down the career path I have done. And then second of all, and it's a little bit different, is that a lot of my approach to management was born out of watching my dad build a business when I was younger. Hmm. Because I did, and, and I'm always curious and interested in people that have, that have built businesses. I just think it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and he, he, I was quite nosy when I was a kid, and so, and then obviously his life goes on. You can ask more, and you know more, etc. But what I realised was that he built a business by treating employees well and valuing them. Things that we spoke about through this. And then subsequently, I've got friends that have started, and they do the same thing. You know, the successful people do the same thing. So this belief that football operates, football has unique aspects to it. Of course it does. But it's not unique. It has, has correlation with other industries and other professions. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the approach to building teams, successful teams and leading, is the same in football as it is across other aspects of life. So I, that was a big influence on me. And I think that if I was to credit MD with giving me the platform to be successful in management, then I think it was watching him and watching my dad do that. Because yeah. it had a major influence on in how I thought people should be treated. That's a great answer. That's a really nice way to wrap up the podcast as well. Jack, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure to speak to you. No, thank you, Adam. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed as well. Make sure to tune in on Monday as Brian and I have another episode of TFA Scouted for you all. And make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers, friends and families as it really helps us to grow. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>